0: Let me clarify at the front end, I love my marriage, I do, and I'm happy, but sometimes I wonder if my wife is, right? I mean, it's just that thing where it is, it, there is a contentment to it, there's a satisfaction to it, there's a fulfillment to it, but Chris made sure in there that we understood that marriage is not necessary for my fulfillment, for my happiness, marriage is for something grander, which is this capacity of God's people to display God well to the world, that ultimately when Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5, he connects this dot into it where he makes sure that we get and we understand that ultimately what marriage is seeking to represent is Christ and the church, and the extent to which you then live out your marriage will either convey to our world what you do or you don't believe about Jesus. When I live in a marriage and I don't fulfill this assignment God's given me, I communicate to the world a wrong understanding of who Jesus is and who the church is. Okay, so that's what he was trying to connect. Now, let me, let me nuance something just a little bit. In the statement where he said that marriage is to display Christ, not happiness, I think some of you out there would be thinking, God's not in this for my happiness? Doesn't God want me to be happy? And over and over, whenever I hit the point where somebody's gonna seek a divorce, that's one of the major things that comes out. I believe God wants me happy. Now let me swing this around a little bit. When we say that God wants us happy, let me clarify that I do believe that God wants us joyful, he wants us satisfied. He wants us content. And even so, I do believe that he wants us happy, but he wants us to find our joy, our satisfaction, our contentment, and our happiness in the correct things. That in other words, the pursuit of happiness might have been a good movie, but I'll tell you what, what he found happiness in and what God calls us to find happiness in may be different things. Now watch this. Here's, the, here's David in one of the Psalms, and Psalms... Uh, Psalm 16. He said to God, Look, God, you make known to me the path of life. Now, watch this. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In other words, if I seek my joy, satisfaction, contentment, happiness outside of God, you know that, that every time you pursue it there, it only ends up being quicksand, doesn't it? On the other end of it, though, when I pursue my joy, satisfaction, contentment, even happiness inside of God, it now gets to this point where look at that last statement of it. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, our little minds can't even grasp that. See, in it, Jesus even taught this. When you get like, into John 15, he throws out this statement to them, and he said, look, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be in the full. See what I mean? It, to say sometimes the statement that God is in it for his display, not for happiness, and that's what, not what Chris meant, and he clarified that a little bit later, but I really want to get in this is that we can get into the wrong understanding that somehow that God isn't into this for my joy, when in fact, Jesus, when he taught through the book of John, was full of this idea. In fact, the idea of full joy and joy to its, its extent that it was intended is Jesus's point. Another place you find it, John 17, Jesus has his last prayer to God in the, when he's with the guys, and he says, but now I'm coming to you. He's speaking to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, one of the things that I think we have to be careful of when we talk about this idea of my happiness, when we talk about my idea of satisfaction, is that when we insinuate And that's not what Chris did last week, but some people were potentially hearing that. When we insinuate that God doesn't care about my joy, that he doesn't care about my satisfaction, my contentment, and even my happiness, not only is it a biblically inaccurate statement, but it can begin to insinuate to other people that Satan does, which is a lie. He wants you to get to you to find your happiness in the things of the world. God is offering you contentment and satisfaction in much greater things. So when we talk about this, Jesus was obsessed with our abundant joy. Then the question then that we have to ask ourselves, if what Chris laid out was this idea of, of what God is seeking to do through marriage, then the obvious question then comes in then, Todd, how do I do that? because last week I sat in here and Chris was laying out this grand concept of the display of God and I left and my wife was in my right arm and I'm like, let's go display Jesus well and then life hit. It's just the reality of the world we live in. Here's one of the biggest things we have to come to the conclusion with. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world that is difficult and painful. Now, what Paul does, what Christ did, I believe all throughout the text, is that when it says that we're to go and pursue our joy, the problem with that is is that oftentimes how we pursue joy is counterintuitive to what our world tells us. Now, all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, right, Paul is saying the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Man's wisdom tends to be intuitive. It, it tends to be the obvious way we think we ought to go, but Paul says, discount man's wisdom at the, to the full extent that you embrace God's wisdom. But God's wisdom is oftentimes counterintuitive, There's all kinds of things that are counterintuitive in life. Now, the first thing is if we're going to understand how to pursue this this, this demonstration of God well to the world, we have to come to the conclusion that oftentimes what God calls us to is counterintuitivity. By the way, that's a word. (laughs) Write that down, counterintuitivity. Blow people away with your vocabulary. People are right now, because we've got Wi-Fi going, no, it's not. It really is, Okay. Now, with this, now listen, we run into things that are counterintuitive all the time. I remember the first time I kind of went to the beach, you got to understand, I grew up in Wyoming, and I know there's a Garth Brooks song that talks about the beaches of Cheyenne. Okay, that's a pond in the middle of Cheyenne, okay? So the first time I ever show up at the ocean, you you know, you just stand in front of it and you're like, that's big. It's so I'm watching people play and swim, and all the while I'm like, why do people get in there? There's like sharks, killer whales. <laughs> but on the day we were there, there was a huge riptide. And so as I'm watching people go out there, I'm like, you idiots, who goes out on a riptide? But they'd still go out. And the riptide would catch them and draw them away, right? And pretty soon, they're swimming. And if you've ever watched somebody swim against a riptide, it's like watching a person on a treadmill. Right? And finally, you see them, right? And the lifeguard then swims out, does what the lifeguard does, and they make it back in. But I'm watching person after person do this. So finally, there's a lifeguard sitting, standing next to me. I go, hey, man explain to me this whole riptide thing and he goes oh he goes people don't understand and he said the word to me because what you have to do is counterintuitive he talked about the idea that first you kind of have to not panic which is hard right as this thing's pulling you out you're not sitting there going oh just wait for the thing pull me out a little further you're sitting there the first thing that comes to your mind is i'm going to die then as the thing pulls you out, he says, you have to get your feet underneath you. And he said, everybody thinks the goal is to swim back into shore, instead to swim parallel to the shore. He said, once you exit the riptide, then you can swim back in. And he was kind of talking to me about that it's counterintuitive. Now, whenever Jesus talks about this, and again, if we're going to talk about what it means in our marriages to display God, and by the way, I think this applies to all kinds of things that are in our life, we have to learn to think in an understanding that the Bible at times will ask us to think counterintuitively. Now, let me give you a few illustrations. Here's one. In Luke 14, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to a group of people, and watch the counter-intuit- counterintuitivity. <laughs> When you give a feast, he said, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. I should just be sitting there going, that's counterintuitive. And then, but watch what he says, and you will be what? That word is Makarios. It literally means to be satisfied and happy to its fullest extent. It's counterintuitive. Look at the next one. Acts 26.2, Paul is, is getting ready to stand before King Agrippa. He faces the reality that he might die. Now think about it. If you were going in front of a judge of some kind and you had the potential to be killed, would you look at it and go, I am so happy to be here today. Pound it out, judge. You know what I mean? It's just, that'd be weird. But watch. I consider myself, and it's the same word, makarios. I consider myself fully happy that it is before you, King Agrippa. That's counterintuitive. Another passage, James 1, 12. Blessed, makarios, fully satisfied, ultimately happy, is the man who remains steadfast when things are safe and comfortable and secure, easy. No, counterintuitive. Remain steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Counterintuitive. 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be what? Blessed. Happy to its fullest extent. That doesn't make any sense. 1 Peter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. See, in this, one of the things that we have to come to the conclusion of, and especially right now if you're in a difficult marriage If you're facing an extremely difficult situation, whether it's illness or sickness or you're having a hard time with your kids, whatever it might be, is you have to come into it with the understanding that the way that I'm going to pursue joy, the way that I'm going to pursue this idea of displaying God well to the world through this situation, it will almost always be counterintuitive. Why? Because faith is counterintuitive. To have faith in this moment requires you to think against oftentimes what the world says that I ought to do. Now, with this, when we think about it, the fall has clouded my mind, and Jesus comes into different situations counterintuitively and says, To save your life, you have to lose it. In order to follow me, you have to take up your cross. The Sermon on the Mount, he continually says, blessed 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 and every blessing has to do with this idea of doing something counterintuitive to what you think you ought to do but the thing about it is never forget this if our goal is to display god wasn't the ultimate act of christ the cross counterintuitive like seriously does the cross make any sense from a human standpoint that God himself would come envelop himself in flesh that's counterintuitive become one of us fully would come in the form of a servant would come in the form of a servant who was accused wrongly who would come in the form of a servant who was accused wrongly who was convicted of a crime that he didn't do then there was after he's convicted of a crime that he didn't do was beaten, was torn down thorns placed upon his head nailed to a tree that is absolutely counterintuitive but here's the thing that's the one we're called to follow when i'm in a hard situation i have to understand that my example is not the world my example is christ and in luke 9:51 one of my passages that i so appreciate here's jesus in this counterintuitive way telling all of the guys i've got to go back to jerusalem and just think about it those guys are going what are you thinking No, Jesus, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't you understand? If you go back to Jerusalem, the Pharisees will end up trying you and potentially you could end up dying. Jesus, don't go there. But in Luke 9.51, it says, Jesus set his face to go back to Jerusalem. Wow. Now, in a trial, what I have to get is that it's counterintuitive, but faith is not faith unless there's action. See, it's one thing here to sit here and go, oh, yeah, yeah, God's counterintuitive, totally counterintuitive. It's crazy, I know, but he's counterintuitive. But you know this, when you're in the throes of difficulty and you're now called to act on that counterintuitive thought, that can become brutal if we're ever going to display God well, not only do I have to understand that we have a counterintuitive God that calls us now, think about this, to not run from our trials, but to what? Run into our trials. What? That makes no sense. I remember when I first saw 9-11 the pictures of it. You remember just the stairwell of all the people running down the stairs? I mean, that would have been me. I would have been like, women, children, get out of my way. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. (laughs) But the thing that fascinated me were the firemen running up. Why? Because that's counterintuitive. When a person goes off to war, They teach them to run sometimes into the fight. What? When policemen are trained, where everyone else is running away from the situation, police are going in to deal with the situation. It's counterintuitive. We live in a world that is in amazing pain, and even we are sometimes in amazing pain. And the crazy part about it is what Jesus demonstrated is he and those that follow him run into the pain. Makes no sense. You can even see it with Jesus, and this is the second thing that I've got to now set my face into this Is that in Acts, Peter was talking about it in chapter 2. He was saying, Look, no, this was the foreordained plan of God. This is what God was going to do. You can see this. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Did you understand that setting our face into our assignment has actually been foreordained by God? Isn't that nuts? In spite of all the sin and all the chaos, because even look in this, you all, and just here's Peter standing in front of all of them. And by the way, you all killed him. You crucified him, and it was by the hands of lawless men. He wanted them to get that it wasn't just that suddenly Jesus got caught off guard and all of a sudden he's like, oh, I guess that I'm going to go to the cross. The idea was this was the very plan of God that in order to accomplish a purpose, he had his son in an absolutely counterintuitive way run into the middle of lawless men with the with the purpose of being Christ had an assignment to fulfill. Now, oftentimes we then think, well, you know, it's just Jesus. He's God in the flesh. It's what he's supposed to do. Go with me real quickly to Matthew 26. I want to show you the humanity of Jesus. And look at verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, I think we got Bibles back here. You can get up. We won't will only laugh at you for a little while if you go back there. Now just, here's Christ, God in flesh. He's staring his assignment in the face, and it says Jesus went with them, verse 36, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, just sit here while I go over there and pray. And then he took with him Peter and James and John. And it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Have you ever felt that way? You're in the middle of something, and you're saying the proverbial statement I want. See, sometimes I've never personally been through divorce. My parents went through a divorce when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I've I've walked with others through the reality of divorce. But the one thing I would say, watching a person in the midst of the throes of divorce, it might be one of the most painful events that a human being can walk through. And they're in the midst of the pain, and they're not sure what to do. I remember the first time that I ever went surfing. I guess today's my uh, ocean illustration time. One of them, Mark, who just got up here, the guy that was a gnome on Lord of the Rings. Um, where's Mark? <laughs> I'm kidding, Mark. <laughs> People out there are like, oh, I don't like Todd. He's mean. <laughs> I make fun of myself, too. I'm an equal opportunity to make fun of him. But he, he goes, hey, man, you want to go surfing? It's Francis, and uh, I don't know, a lot of you might have remembered uh, Doug Fox. And I'm like, totally, let's go surfing. <laughs> So I get there, they've got a wetsuit for me and I'm pulling on my wetsuit and I'm getting ready to go. I got my board, you know, it's my first time out there. And they get there, we're kind of on the edge of the water and I go, so what do I do? And they said, well, you gotta make it past the break first and then we'll tell you. Okay. So I'm swimming on my board. I finally make it out past the break, man. And I get out there and I'm looking at all of them and I, you know, they're sitting on their board all cool. And I'm like trying to figure out how to do that because I wanted to look cool. And I look over them and I go, Well, now what? Well, now you catch a wave. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, duh, I'm coming surfing. So they're all riding waves and I'm like, Okay, so I'm like, Catch a wave. I don't know what that means. So I'm kind of watching them a little bit and I'm thinking, Okay, I'll catch a wave. So I, I go to catch my first wave, and I kind of just accidentally caught it correctly, (laughs) and the board is starting to move along, and I'm like, I try to stand up, and I fall, but I'm thinking, surfing, (laughs) losers, took them so long, I've got it, (laughs) so I swim back out, I'm, I'm getting ready, and so I'm getting ready to catch my next wave, and I'm swimming for everything I can, and the last thing I hear is Mark Sneed tell me, Todd. You're too late. And I got turned and turned and turned and turned. And I was trying to figure out where to put my feet. And it was kind of a rocky place. And every time i try to put my feet down right, you just feel rock underneath you. And my toes were all bloody. And I'm thinking to myself, blood sharks. What am I, you know? <laughs> <laughs> must get out, <laughs> you know? But when you're in the middle of pain, Don't you feel like that? You're just being turned. You don't know which way's up. See, it's one thing to set your face into pain. It's another thing to be in the middle of it, and you're just not sure what to do. When it comes to marriage, oftentimes, whenever somebody finds this point in which they're facing a tough marriage, they're not liking the assignment that they're in, I'll hear words like this Nothing is going to change. I can't handle it anymore. Do you understand what my husband did? Do you understand the infidelity, the abuse, the addiction? Do you understand that all we do, it seems like, is argue? In other words, they're turning. They're looking for a way that's up, and oftentimes what comes into it is they find solace either in their wrong think their own wrong thinking or the thinking of others. In other words, it comes in and, and this is some of the things I've I've heard people say to people, you know what, you were just so young when you got married. Get out. You need to remove yourself from toxic people. <coughs> Forgetting the fact that I'm toxic. The longer I stay here, I feel like the more I pay. Enough is enough. I've warned my spouse. I deserve better. And the kids do too. There's God's perfect will and his permissive will. If you ever say that, understand, bells and whistles of danger should be going off in your head. I can just start over and rediscover myself. In essence, what you're saying is, is God, let this cup pass I don't want this assignment. I want a new one. To which what comes into that is Jesus Christ who demonstrated when you have your assignment, you follow through to the end. Even at great cost. Back when I was growing up, there was the Calgon commercials. You remember those? Calgon what? Oh, and we have a theology of Calgon when it comes to marriage. Just get me out of here. But let me ask you this question. When we start saying things like that, and our only hope is to get out, if God has called us to a lifetime assignment in the life of a person, even if they're difficult? When you're being told to get out, is that from God or from Satan? Think about that for a second. Now, a passage one time somebody took me to and they said, oh, no, 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 it's God asking me to get out. And I said, interesting. I said, which verse? And they would always, people always tend to go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, and this is where they always stop, he will provide you a way of escape. And I always say, well, let me see your Bible. I think there's more to that verse. He will provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I don't like that part. (laughs) Now, we have all been there, right? Right? If you're someone in here right now in a difficult marriage, I might not have a difficult marriage, but we've all hit that point where we've said, God, I like the escape clause, and God says, no, I'll give you an escape to endure it more. You see this like in the book of Matthew. Go back, I think you're already in the book of Matthew, but look at Matthew 16. This idea, is it from God or from Satan? Here's Jesus, He's, he's got his particular call his assignment to go and to fulfill, that God's called him to to fulfill. And Peter comes along. And in verse 21, you see Jesus teaching him and showing his disciples, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. That was his assignment. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now watch what Jesus did. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to my assignment. Wow. In fact, if anybody ever starts telling you in the midst of a difficult marriage, Get out. I would go to Matthew 16 and I would look at them and say, Get behind me, Satan. You are wrong. See, when I have my assignment, God is not asking me to fulfill it when I feel like it. He's given it to me and only me and asking me to fulfill it to the end. Now that's hard when we're in sickness, illness, watching our kids even decay, or watching that marriage in there, but God is looking at us saying, I've called you to that assignment. And I think in that crisis of faith, it's so interesting when we're asking it, is really what I'm saying is, God, do I trust you? God, are you sure this assignment's for me? If there's any way, let this cup pass. But the bold words of the Christian in the following of Jesus Christ is, but not my will, but yours. God, if you have this assignment for me, I'll go for it. And I believe while everyone else is telling you to get out, I believe God is whispering into our life that your spouse, warts and all, is your assignment for life. Now, a lot of times we say, well, again, that was Jesus. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 2.16, it says, we have the mind of Christ we can walk into it. And not only that, but I think a lot of you are sitting there going, Todd, I thought we were talking about happiness today. I'm trying to understand what your happiness is. In Hebrews 12, we see this. We look to Jesus. Again, this is what I've been talking about. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Sorry? Sorry? That was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Somehow in there, in a way that we will never understand fully, Jesus Christ looked at the assignment that was given him, and he said, I'm going to approach this assignment with joy. Why? Because the cross was such a wonderful place to spend a vacation? Because he loved what he saw on the other side. Our God is in the redemption business. Jesus Christ went there because he had us in mind. He had in mind that me going to the cross is the means by which through pain, through agony, through the sin of others, through even my own death, I will then be about defeating pain and agony and sin and death. See, our God has a phenomenal capacity when he asks us to go into pain, that's our assignment, he always has inside of that, that through your pain, through your suffering, through what's going on in there, that is the means by which I will defeat it. I will use you in the midst of that pain to be redemptive. Now let me show you a couple passages so we can get our mind around this. In Hebrews 1 One of my favorite passages to to go through on this is that God's now looking at it, and he says this statement. Do I have that one? Okay, I'll recite it to you. In James 1, it says this, "'Consider it all,' what? "'Joy, counterintuitive, "'when you experience trials of various kinds, "'knowing that the testing of your faith "'produces endurance. "'Let endurance have its perfect work, "'that you might be perfect and complete, "'lacking nothing.'" He says, make your mind up right now that you will be joyful about it because on the other side of your trial is completeness and perfection. In other words, you will look more like Jesus. I always hear people say, oh, we even sing songs. Lord, I want to be more like you. And he says, okay, I've got a trial for you. Well, not like that. <laughs> right? Right? Let this cup pass for me. You know, it's just that's generally what we do. The joy of it is you will never look like Christ without trials and suffering and pain. It's hard then when I look at it in my kids' lives. Right? It's one thing for me to go, okay, I'll walk down that path. Okay, I'll walk down that path. But then what happens when it happens to our kids? Isn't it weird how we always try to rescue our kids from trials? What we're actually rescuing them from is Christ-likeness. Are you sure you want to do that? See, the reason that I can have joy is, number one, I'll look more like Christ. In Romans 5, do I have that one? Yes! Romans 5. Not only that, here's our statement. I told you I was going to get to the happy part. We rejoice in our counterintuitive sufferings. Why? Paul, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through us, through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Think about this. The reason somebody is exiting their marriage is because they've lost what? Hope. Hope. And in the back of their head, in intuition, what they think is, I will find more hope if I exit that. And Jesus is looking at them saying, no, in your assignment, if you want to have, find hope, enter back into it. Wow. Thank you. Amen. Amen. See, it's the counterintuitive way of thinking. How in the world can that produce hope? Well, I'll tell you what, our God takes all kinds of things. He asked people to walk through a sea when they were being chased by the Pharaoh. Can you imagine Moses going, okay, here's the plan. We're going to walk through the sea. What? <laughs> what? The plan of God has always been to take these hopeless situations and create hope powerful. But it's not just that he creates this character within me. It's not just that he produces this endurance and this Christ-likeness. But in First Peter, we see that God has something else in mind. In this, now, if you see my theme, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, counterintuitive, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation with Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, faith, you love him. Though you do not see him, faith, you still believe him, even at counterintuitive ways, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." We oftentimes talk, how do I have assurance of my salvation? You find assurance in trials. That's where you find it. When you get in the midst of those trials, suddenly it's the Father looking at you saying, see, I told you, you're one of mine. When the fire hits you, I changed you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about this idea of the suffering that he's been facing. And oftentimes in our head, we think that the way to experience comfort is that I need to exit whatever pain I'm in. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says, if you want to find true comfort, counterintuitive, stay inside of the suffering. Well, why, Paul? He says this when he gets to the very end of 2 Corinthians, like in verses 10 and 11. He says this statement that because at the end of it, we have nothing left to cling to but God. God is never afraid to strip everything away so that all we have left is him. And if you remember Psalm 1611, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's joy in his presence so when you look at this now, inside of suffering and trials, there's maturity and hope and assurance and comfort and nearness. And that's why Paul, at the very end of his life, says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And you know what? Now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which will be rewarded to me by God. See, at the end of it, he's saying, God, I finished your assignment. I did what you asked me to do. I think oftentimes then we think to ourselves, well, what in the world? Let me just be really clear with you. God doesn't always rescue us from our assignment. But here's the beauty of God. The redemptive God makes us sufficient to our assignment. God doesn't always rescue us from our assignment, but he makes us sufficient to our assignment. No matter what assignment that you are facing, God will make you sufficient to anything that you're going through. I don't care what it is. The God that spoke the entire universe into existence, the God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the God that one day is coming back to judge and rule the entire earth, whatever it is that's going on inside of your life, our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you can ever ask or even imagine. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to necessarily change your spouse. But God is not just in the business of changing your spouse, He's in the business of changing you. Our God is powerful. Through what's going on in your life, He can accomplish anything. You know the verse that people always quote I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And football players wear it under their eyes. You know, they sit there, Philippians 4 12. Tim Tebow's back and passes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you honestly think that's what that verse means? What that verse means is whatever situation you're in, and Paul was in the lowest of low circumstances while he's facing jail time in, in regards to writing this letter to Philippi. And he said, I've learned a little secret. I've learned to find contentment in any and all circumstances. Why Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what it is, you can find joy in it because in the midst of your trial is Christ's likeness and endurance and maturity and hope and satisfaction and nearness to God and all these other things that are in the middle of it. But listen, you have to think counterintuitively. You have to set your face into the trial and believe that there's a God in there that is able to do beyond anything that you can imagine. Now, For some of you in this room, you're, you're people that have faced a divorce before, and I'm going to talk about this next week because I think there's too many people that are divorced that wear their divorce around like a scarlet letter. Jesus either forg- has forgiven you or he hasn't. If he's forgiven you, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about that next week. For those of you that are in a difficult marriage, don't give up. Remember the, the speech that, that Winston Churchill gave? Never, no, never, never, never give in. Remember that one, if you've ever heard it before? He gave that to a bunch of high school students. Did you know that? It was right at the point in which it seemed to be Hitler was winning. Can you imagine Winston Churchill going in and saying, kids, never No, never, 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 never give in. Little did the kids know that it was just a few months until Russia would join into this because Hitler had the audacity to try to cross over and defeat Russia, the Soviet Union at the time. The United States was about ready to come in because Japan woke a sleeping giant. Churchill gave this speech in this with the understanding that things were about to change. Churchill is a cool guy, but he's not our God. And in it, he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ever ask or imagine. Never, no never, 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 never give in. Our God is great. For those of you in good marriages... I've oftentimes found that married people, when they see other people in difficult marriages, what we tend to do is we tend to go, oh, wow, it stinks to be you. (laughs) God is sufficient. He will make you able. All the while, God is giving you assignment to enter into even the pain and the difficulty of their life. We're a body. We're a team. I'm not saying every bad marriage is your assignment, I'm saying that the marriages that are near you that are struggling, they need our help. Remember the riptide illustration? I finally asked the guy that was a lifeguard, I said, well, what if they don't swim very well? He said, then we tell people, scream for help. Sometimes Christians don't swim very well, metaphorically, do they? And they're telling you things screaming for help, and that is where the body is to go in. Let those who are mature restore individuals into health. Galatians 6.1. But here's the last thing. I was watching everybody come in today, and I'm even looking at you all right now. You look dour and sour. <laughs> I get what I talked about was a little intense. But let me just fill you in on something. I just finished reading the book of Revelation this week. <laughs> Jesus. Don't save your energy. No, 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 stop over there. (laughs) I'm giving you a moment to collect yourself, let it build. (laughs) Jesus wins. Our God is victorious, not only in the large things, but in the minutia of your life. Our God wins. Now, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, okay? Now, please, this is where I want it to come out. I feel like every time we ever do the Lord's Supper, everybody gets so dour and sour. Now, this is a serious thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ within here, th- this, this table is not yours. We're not trying to do it to be mean, but it's for those that have said they, would, they desire to follow Jesus Christ and have placed their faith in Jesus, It's also not a table. If you're somebody right now that you haven't dealt with sin between you and another person, Paul says, no, that's why people end up getting sick and even dying. So, in other words, if you were on your way here today fought with your spouse, lean over to your spouse and just at that point say something along these lines. Honey, I'm an idiot. (laughs) I live in a fallen world and I'm tempted because I'm not counterintuitive To say dumb things. Please forgive me. If there's somebody in this room that you've wronged or has wronged you, just walk across the room and deal with it. But in it, the Lord's Supper is not meant to be taken with sadness. It's meant to be taken with the idea that our Savior, King Jesus, has conquered all. And so I'm going to have everybody come forward. I'm not saying now we're going to dance or anything. I'm just, there's to be a reflection to it. But man, Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. Okay, we're going to pass those things around.